1: Probably know just what to do Don't you? If I had ever been it before On another time around the
2: wheel I would probably know just nothing
3: So I think it is human nature to think about time travel. I, I find the older I get, the more I think about what it would be like to be able to go into the past and fix things. And and I, I find myself thinking in almost neurotic levels of detail about this, too. And I think about 9-11. I think about Sandy Hook and Uvalde. You just think of the things that you wish you could go back to knowing what you know and what nobody else knew at the time. Um, That's going to be one of the things we talk about today in an episode about time travel. A little bit later in the show, you're going to hear one of our favorite physics writers, probably our favorite physics writer, Amanda Gefter, talk a little bit about the physics of time travel. Emma Straub, the novelist, has a new book out in which uh, a woman who's about 40 goes back into her teenage past. Not so much in a back-to-the-future kind of way, but but maybe in kind of a Back to the Future kind of Anyway, we'll let Emma explain it. Uh, but right now, we're going to talk to Sarah Bernstein, the R.L. Connell, college professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome very much to our show.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
3: This whole question, right, of time travel dominates science fiction. It dominates literature. I mean, it just comes up a lot anyway uh, in all of these contexts. Although, interestingly, Hardly anybody ever travels into the future, right? Everybody seems to follow that instinct to go back into the past.
2: That's right. You know, I think in the collective imagination, people are really interested in time travel because they wonder, for example, could we have done anything to change the way that things turn out? For example, could we have poured a bit of Purell onto those first bits of coronavirus, you know, in late 2019 and early 2020? Or could we have gone back in time and, say, saved a whole bunch of people But in fact, going to the future also presents a lot of interesting metaphysical and ethical issues. So suppose that you time traveled into the future, 30 years, and you saw that there was going to be another pandemic. Um, You know, what sort of scramble would people want to do to try to prevent that from happening? What sorts of, you know, destiny might there be if we already see a future that exists? Is it changeable or not? So while people tend to think more about the past and the future, there are very similar issues having to do with what's changeable when we travel to the future.
3: So let's talk about some of the ethical issues, particularly with traveling into the past, right? You you think you can fix something. You think you want to fix something. Yeah, let's, let's take your example of the Purell uh, in Wuhan or, or wherever on the coronavirus. The thing is, you don't really know what else would happen, right? You don't know what kinds of valuable lessons we are learning from this pandemic that might help us in the future pandemic 10, 15, 20 years from now. I mean, there must be a lot of reasons to question the validity of the impulse to think that I can fix things by going – into the past with my superior knowledge about events of that time.
2: That's absolutely right. There's a bit of arrogance, I think, and thinking we would know what happened if we wouldn't change something in the past. There's a concept in moral philosophy called moral risk. And the idea is, you know, every time you walk out your door in the morning and you're interacting with other people, you're a part of the big grand causal nature of the world, you're doing something morally risky. Um, when you get into a car, you're essentially driving something fairly dangerous. But this is amplified by going back into the past and changing things, because you don't know what's actually going to happen in the future. It could be, for example, that the current lessons we're learning now, you know, will help us weigh more 25 years down the line, and maybe that will ultimately end up saving many more lives, so that's obviously a question for ethicists about how we weigh that, but we really don't know what sort of situation we'd be in if we could change small things, even let alone big ones.
3: You know, one of my high school classmates who is now past used to do this thing where he would buy Powerball tickets and then he would walk into work and he would stop at a secretary's desk who followed this sort of thing and say, say, check my tickets, see if I won. And of course, he never won. And one day as a prank. He waited until the numbers had been announced. And then he bought a new ticket with those numbers on it. Obviously, this ticket was not a winning ticket anymore. <laughs> and then he just, you know, very casually said, just check my number uh, and see if it. And then, of course, she flipped out and freaked out. And, <laughs> and then, he, then he had to say, no, no, I just I actually. Well, but that brings up questions of motivation, right? Does mm-hmm. to an ethicist. To an ethical philosopher does motivation matter like if i want to what i want to do is is take my knowledge of the Powerball winner and go into the past that to me seems somewhat different than trying to stop 9-11
2: yes i think that's absolutely right i mean many more philosophers do take motivations to matter even if we're putting weight on the outcomes You know, I also think on a practical level where time travel to ever really happen be proven to be possible. There would obviously have to be lots of practical restrictions on who's allowed to do it, you know, what sorts of things they'd be allowed to do. I would think that there would be very limited room for activity and a lot of people studying what might happen were someone to change something even very small. So something I've talked about in my work is... You know, the idea that even if you just travel back in time as quietly as possible, you know, you, you land your time machine in a bush in a, in a basically abandoned place. You are going to cause other small things to happen that then cause very big things to happen. And that's risky. And we would want people knowing about those risks before they do it. And moreover, we'd only want them to be doing it for extremely morally important things not, for example, to win the Powerball.
3: Right. And so, yeah, you could just crash your time machine into a bush and maybe that bush had some berries on it that a bird was going to eat and the bird was going to live because it ate the berries and then it was going to eat a rat that had some kind of pandemic thing in its bloodstream and and you've wiped out the entire human race just because you insisted on going into the past.
2: Yeah, just because you wanted to, you know, see an abandoned bush, for example. Exactly.
3: And, well, I mean, there's so many different aspects to this, but I mean, I think the other thing is, there should be ethically maybe some kind of severance between you know, um, charitable and, and notions, selfless notions. And maybe personal notions. I mean, for example, when we get to Emma Straub on this show, her novel includes a woman who winds up back in the past wanting very much to change her father's personal habits so that he doesn't smoke as much, he gets more exercise, he doesn't die as young. You know, she's just trying to avoid one thing in her own life. But I suppose, once again, the fallacy is the supposition that we can isolate things into one area of our own lives.
2: Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, I think it would also bring up really difficult ethical questions, for example, about who to save. So, you know, one example I talk about is that the onset of antibiotics in the last century has obviously saved millions of lives, but they're so easy to use. You know, what would stop people from wanting to go back in time 200, 300 years and save as many people as possible by just distributing out some amoxicillin? On the other hand, as you know, you might have guessed, that's not just one small change, you'd really be wholesale changing a lot of things that happen. And so there are these difficult moral issues for any particular instance, it seems like we should try to save a person. But when you look at this issue collectively with time travel, it gets a lot trickier with respect to that moral risk I talked about.
3: Right. You could wind up with MRSA on steroids, you know. It's got hundreds (laughs) of years to learn how to resist antibiotics. So, yeah, there are risks like that. Now, there are also metaphysical questions. And just, I mean, mean, the biggest one, uh, and I think you cite the work of the analytical philosopher David Lewis, is the so-called grandfather problem. You want to explain what the grandfather problem is?
2: Yes. So the grandfather paradox is this famous problem in the metaphysics of time travel. And it goes something like this. Suppose that Tim is a time traveler to the past and he really wants to kill his grandfather. You know, David Lewis doesn't tell us why. It's a strange story, but we just have to roll with it. On the one hand, it's pretty easy to imagine Tim's specific act of killing his grandfather. Let's suppose that he has the weapon, he can pull the trigger, and he's very well trained. There's nothing really physically stopping him from doing it. On the other hand, for Tim to kill his own grandfather in the past, his father would not have existed and thus Tim himself would not have existed. So it seems like Tim in some sense can't kill his grandfather because his grandfather can't die or the very preconditions for Tim's own existence wouldn't have happened. And so we hold these kind of two things together as a paradox. On the one hand, nothing's physically stopping Tim. On the other hand, it's impossible that Tim kills his own grandfather because Tim's very existence is evidence that his grandfather has not been killed.
3: But there might be alternative ways to look at that, too, right? I mean, we have to sort of think about what time really is uh, and whether it can be affected that way.
2: Yes, that's right. So this will partially depend on what you think time is and how changeable you think time is. There are, for example, some philosophers who accept a branching conception of the universe, according to which, you know, at any particular moment, reality is branching off into a bunch of different options, basically. And so perhaps there's one branch in which Tim kills his grandfather and one branch in which Tim does not kill his grandfather. On the other hand, some philosophers have also questioned whether this should really count as time travel as opposed to a kind of weird planetary or interdimensional travel.
3: Yeah, sort of a multiverse. I mean, there's also the possibility that the reality in which Tim is alive is a fixed constant that's inalterable. You know, that that that's what really is the kind of reigning condition. The prevailing condition is this reality where Tim is alive. So if he tries to go back and kill his grandfather, he's going to crash his time travel machine or or something. Right.
2: That's right. That, you know, the prevailing idea is that no matter how hard Tim tries, he's going to be very unlucky. You know, a bird's going to get in the way of the bullet. Um, A rainstorm's going to spontaneously start pick whatever sort of comedic scenario, you know, that catches your fancy, but Tim is not going to succeed. One reason for this, as you suggest, is that many people who study metaphysics think that time is like space, in that the entire thing is just spread out, basically in one big block, and it all exists at once. So just like, for example, um, Australia exists, and it's very far from me right now, but it doesn't mean that it's no less real. Um, Many metaphysicians think that the past and the future, while they're distant from us right now, are no less real. Uh, than the present. They're all just out there, basically. But the fact that they're out there also means that they're unchangeable in certain ways, including in ways that affect our answers to the grandfather paradox.
3: Right. I mean, one way that it might not work would be that I don't necessarily know what the physical or Tim doesn't know what the physical terrain is like where he's Mm -hmm. going. So if he just kind of, you know, relocates from this position in the present to the same position in the past. Maybe there's a boulder or a huge stack of plywood sitting there and then he dies because it becomes plywood.
2: Absolutely, he might, you know, crash. You know, one thing I talk about in my own work is time travelers are actually at risk of running into themselves on the backwards timeline. You know, if, if the room you're in right now counts as the time machine and you push a button to go back in time, you're located in the same space that you are on the forward moving timeline for the duration of your time travel, you risk what's called the double occupancy problem. There's going to be a version of you moving forward, but also a version of you moving backwards, and you're going to crash into each other. So that's one of many practical barriers to Tim being able to kill grandfather.
3: So then another thing that you've looked at is the whole question of whether you can sort of alter the future in the sense of maybe going forward in time, I could go forward in time, I find out how I die, and then I could somehow they other try not to die that way, <laughs> right? I could <laughs> right. try to alter the future so that I live longer.
2: Right, you know, one thing I say there is, however you feel about the past-facing grandfather paradox, if you wanna be systematic about your thinking, you'll probably have to think the same thing about the future paradox. So even though intuitively we like to think that the past is somehow fixed and the future, is inalterable, If you think that time is sort of like static in this way we've been talking about, then if you think that Tim can't kill grandfather no matter how hard he tries, you should probably also think that you're not going to be able to save your own life no matter how hard you try.
3: So one of the things that we often look at in movies when we think about time travel to the future at all is seeing what's happening seeing what climate change did seeing that the robots took over you know and then bringing that information back to the past which is probably different than materially altering conditions in the past or the future
2: well you know there are questions about that Um, philosophers talk about this thing called a causal loop roughly there's a causal loop where you know you cause something in the future to happen and then the future version of you causes something in the past to happen so you know there's a paradigm case of this in 12 monkeys but there are also informational causal loops. Uh, so for example, Minority Port is a case of this where someone gets a piece of information, it causes a whole bunch of plot to happen. Um, and then it turns out that you caused that piece of information to go back to yourself in the past. And so simply having the information is already a change to reality. It might not be a typically physical one, but you know, even for example, having information in your brain that you wouldn't have had otherwise is a, marginally physical one, and it still will cause other small things to happen.
3: So it seems like the minute we start talking about all these things, then questions about free will, volition, agency enter into it, right? We'd like to think that if we could travel in time, we could be effective actors or agents. But I mean, a lot of what you're saying is suggesting that maybe that's not the case at all, particularly if these things are essentially fixed in nature.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. So I think a lot of issues about time travel really directly intersect with philosophical issues about free will. And if, for example, you have this view of time that it's all spread out already, just like space is already spread out, I think you're going to have a fairly difficult time defending the sort of free will many humans think that they have.
3: There's also the kind of the, you know, back to that notion of arrogance, there's that sense that we sometimes have that we could do something. You know, the comedian Ricky Gervais talks about how people always talk about time travel in terms of going back and killing Hitler. But he points out a lot of people tried to kill Hitler back then and they weren't successful. So you'd have to kill Hitler as a baby. Could you kill a baby? And I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like an odd thing for a comedian to be talking about, but he does actually make it somewhat funny. But th- that's an odd question, too. Right. Just the, the idea that, you know, a good outcome, a better outcome is if Hitler doesn't exist. Does that mean you kill a baby?
2: Yes, good. I mean, I think these are all really difficult moral issues about time travel. One solution I push in some of my work on the ethics of time travel is it's worth questioning whether the moral risk of some instances of time travel is necessarily greater than other things that we do as a matter of course, you know, so for example, you know, consider many modern medicines that have many wonderful upsides and save many, many lives, but that also have small, at the time, unforeseeable downsides when you know scientists are inventing these things and putting them on the market there is some moral risk involved but on the other hand you know we think it's worth it to save all of these lives and you might reason similarly about time travel certainly you know there's going to be some risk involved but i would hope that if time travel were possible you know we'd have our best people on it studying all of the possible outcomes we could even think even of a minute change to the past so i think the answer is It certainly would be morally risky. Whether it's more morally risky than things we do in the present at a collective level is something worth questioning.
3: So you might have heard me saying this to my producer, Lily, before we went on the air. But in one of the Avengers movies, they really do decide they're going to use time travel to fix something really horrible that happened. And they actually have a conversation about how how time travel works. And at one point, Ant-Man, played by Paul Rudd, says... So you're telling me that Back to the Future is, and then he uses a very unkind barnyard word, uh, and I mean, Back to the Future kind of has a lot of the paradoxes in it, right?
2: Yeah. So Back to the Future is actually a movie I assigned to students in my time travel class. Yes, that's a thing. As an example of a metaphysically incoherent time travel movie. <laughs> so, you know, it has a lot of logical contradictions that, you know, as philosophers, I think really bother us. So for example, if Michael J. Fox already exists enough to go back into the past, then that sort of blurring out that happens while he's playing his instrument is not something that would even happen, right? Um, It couldn't even happen. (laughs)
3: Right. And, you know, the, sometimes I think the more accurate the movie is, the harder it is to understand. I mean, Back to the yes. Future is really easy to understand. <laughs> but, <Yes. laughs> but, but Tenet, uh, you know, which sort of has I, I, things moving back and forth in time. I, I mean, I could probably watch that movie 10 times and I still wouldn't quite understand what's going on there. And I think that sort of points at the complexity of this stuff when you really start taking it seriously.
2: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. You know, one thing I like to tell my students is there's good entertainment and there's good philosophy. And sometimes they cross over and they don't always, but it's completely okay to just enjoy good entertainment.
3: Well, Sarah Bernstein, you've been a joy to talk to in this moment and probably any others we might choose to inhabit. Sarah Bernstein is the R.L. Canola College Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Thanks so much, everyone. Bye-bye. New. Flashback, warm night, almost left behind. Suitcase
3: of memories, time after some. All right. Used. We are welcoming back to our show now Amanda Gefter. I have not interviewed her in a while, but she really is our favorite physics and science writer. Uh, and she is an MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow, the author of Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. I also have to sort of get my game up if I'm going to talk to Amanda because things get really complicated. But she also makes them, I think, very discernible. So, So don't be intimidated. So first of all, Amanda, welcome back to our show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: And we're going to skip over Laplace's demon just because we don't have time, even though I like the name <laughs> a lot. Uh, and we're going to st- we have to start with Einstein. And I, you, know, you just heard uh, Sarah Bernstein talking about basically this notion of a block universe—the idea that it's just kind of all there already. But say a little bit more for our listeners about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so before Einstein, like in in Newton's time, you sort of had this idea that. You could almost imagine like a giant clock sitting outside the universe that's sort of ticking away the seconds for the whole universe and so um everyone sort of shares the same time everyone agrees on the meaning of the word now um and what happens with einstein once he realizes that the speed of light is not instantaneous it's finite and so light takes time to travel and um, and that's the fastest thing there is so basically no signal in the universe could ever be faster than light. Um, this ends up telling Einstein that that different observers will disagree on the meaning of the word now. So if you have some event that happens, um, if you have, you know, lightning strikes two poles and you say, you know, did the lightning strike the two different poles at the same time? Um, these are two different bolts of lightning <laughs> hitting two different poles. Um, You can, you know, one observer who's just standing there watching might say, yes, it hit at the same time. Um, And another observer who's pulling up in a train car, you know, moving towards one of the poles and away from the other, because that light takes time to reach his eyes, he's going to see the one he's moving towards happen first and the one he's moving away happen second. Um, And so he's going to say, no, they didn't happen at the same time. And our inclination is to sort of say, well, the one who's standing still is right and the other one just sort of sees it wrong. Um, but the whole meaning of the theory of relativity is that there's no real way to say who's actually standing still and who's actually in motion. So there's no way to say any particular observer is right, the other is wrong. And so it's really like, I have my own meaning of the word now, you have your own meaning of the word now, we're both equally right about that. And so, so, all nows, all instance of time, past, present, and future have to sort of coexist in this spread out block universe, um, as Sarah was saying. And and so now, like, whereas in in Newton's time, the idea of time travel, you could think it, but it didn't really make sense. It's like, we're all living in the present. The past is gone. The future is not here yet. There's sort of nowhere to go. But once you have this block universe where every now is already here, The idea of time travel becomes very plausible because now there is somewhere to go. You know, it's the past is here just as much as the future or the present.
3: Right. So, yeah, once again, that, I mean, Einstein says the distinction between the past, present and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Uh, He's basically saying that, as you're saying, that it it all exists. But then... So whenever we talk about time and now in the context of, of Amanda Gafter the next question is at what point will she start talking about John Archibald Wheeler and the answer <laughs> is now uh, right now so so Wheeler comes along and and he he changes the terms a little bit right he ta- starts talking about how observation essentially does change some of what we might have thought were settled aspects of reality?
1: Yeah. So Wheeler, um, you know, was one of the great uh, physicists working on relativity, but then he also worked on quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics does change a lot of the conversation around time travel. And and in particular, it sort of destroys this idea of the block universe. Um, So You know, when I was thinking about this, listening to Sarah talking, I was realizing, you know, this, the questions like about the grandfather paradox and and things that involve the block universe sort of highlight these two ways that we think about the world. Um, One is like, we think of the world as kind of like running on its own steam without us and just kind of turning along deterministically. It just is some particular way and we're just kind of like here. Um, And the other way is to think that our actions and our choices and the questions we ask and the measurements we make actually matter in shaping the reality that's that's happening around us. Um, And so the grandfather paradox sort of plays off those two things. On the one hand, you think you can go back and just sort of be in the world as it was. And at the same time, you think that your choices might change things. And so um, in quantum mechanics, your choices really do change things in in a very drastic way. And so what Wheeler realizes is like, every time we ask a question, so we ask, you know, does this particle have a particular position or a particular momentum? You know, that question and that choice that we make in asking that question plays some role in determining the actual reality of what's happening. Um, It doesn't create what's happening. Um, Like if, you know, I can basically ask, does this particle have position or momentum? Um, If I choose to ask about position, it will have a position. I don't get to control what the position is, but I get to control the fact that it has a position and not a momentum. Or I can ask, does it have momentum? And now um, it's a different story. And so what Wheeler realized is you can ask questions about the past. So I can ask, you know, did that particle of light travel across the universe along this path or that path, even though I'm asking about something that supposedly happened billions of years ago. But the way I frame the question, the way I run my measurement actually has an effect on what the answer is. And so the past, it's not time travel, but it's like we're, we can ask questions that shape not only the present or even the future, but the the
3: past as well. Right. And so that kind of morphs into, I think, after Wheeler's death, these so-called double spl- uh, slit experiments. And we're not going to try to explain these in any kind of detail because we'll be here all day. But basically, <laughs> it suggests that uh, that altering the present of a photon can change the past of the photon. And it's not really at the theoretical level. You can, quote unquote, see it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: So, I mean, that once again suggests First of all, it's just very funky and part of quantum weirdness and and kind of head spinning, but clearly there's some, some stuff going on here that, that we don't entirely understand. Now, another thing that Wheeler was a genius at was branding. Uh, so he took uh, the Einstein-Rosen bridge and rebranded it as Wormhole, which is like so yes. much better. Um, and so Wormhole comes up, right? Wormhole comes up a bunch like, OK, I'm going to go through a wormhole. And, and I don't know what that means, but I'm going to come out someplace different. And maybe I'm going to come out somehow in the past or, or the future or something. Uh, that seems perhaps a little glib, though.
1: Well, I mean, the, you know, so in, in relativity, when you were dealing with time travel, like travel into the future is, is sort of easy to do. Um, uh, like you can just move really fast. So if I, you know, uh, there's a great example, like um, these astronauts uh, who are twins, Scott and Mark Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Kelly spent a year on the International Space Station. So he's moving much, much faster um, than his twin. And when he comes back to Earth, he has traveled 13 milliseconds into the future so he's he's 13 milliseconds younger than his twin um and or younger than he already was <laughs> younger than his twin i think he was about six minutes younger um but anyway you know so you can the, you know the international space station's traveling like five miles a second if you travel closer to speed of light which is 186,000 miles per second you can travel appreciably into the future you come back like your clock is running normally, but you come back and everyone else um, is long dead and and you're you're far into the future. Um, Or you can go hang out around a black hole or in a strong gravitational field and come back and you'll be in the future. So future travel is easy. It's getting back into the past. That's not obvious how you would do it. You'd have to travel even faster than the speed of light uh, to do it, which you can't. So the option that people come up with is, well, what if there are these sort of strange geometries in space and time like a wormhole where you enter at one point and you come out at a different time. And so that becomes the more plausible way of traveling into the past. But even that is very hard to do in physics. It's the wormholes. It's not clear that you could really do it.
3: All right. I'm going to shift you a little bit away from physics and a little bit more towards personal relationships. And I'm going to tell you why first, (laughs) Um, which is we didn't plan it this way at all. But we knew Emma Straub had this novel out called This Time Tomorrow that had some time travel in it. Uh, I think we hadn't even read the book yet. Uh, and um, we also knew if we're talking about time travel or anything like that, we're going to have Amanda Gefter on. And it really wasn't until this morning that I put together the fact that, that This Time Tomorrow is very much um, a daughter-father story. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and that your book, Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn is also a father-daughter story. You and your father did stuff like you would crash uh, scientific conventions, including yeah. one, <laughs> including one to honor John Archibald Wheeler on the 90th anniversary of his birth. Uh, just so you could ask him one kind of fangirl question, not really, <laughs> not really a fangirl question, and actually yeah, no, a very, a very still... relevant question, actually, um, but. I, you know, and, and I think about Wheeler, too, is haunted by the death of his brother in a foxhole in World War II while he, Wheeler, is working on the Manhattan Project, which, when brought to its conclusion, would theoretically end the war. You know, I feel like there's there's something personal about all this. You start yeah. thinking about this, you know, and you're like you and your dad and your International House of Pancake Napkins and stuff like that. I, I don't know. Could you say a little bit more about this? I mean, I think you understand what I'm trying to ask you
1: yeah i mean you know i think i think on some level all this stuff ends up being personal because it's like why do you why even care um and and yeah i mean i think like the things that are driving certainly that were driving wheeler to try to develop the bomb was you know to save his brother i'm sure he thought about you know could you go back in time and save his brother because he was very haunted by that um and yeah it's it's all of these things have a lot of emotion in them and and a lot of personal meaning and um yeah i think again it's like it comes down to this issue of do our choices matter or not um do our choices make a difference in the, the course of the world for ourselves but also for other people that we care about um And and one of the things that really haunted Wheeler the most like later in his life was this question in quantum mechanics of like how multiple observers link up into a shared world. Like if I make one measurement and that creates one reality and you make another and that creates another reality, like what what about our relationship? And that that was like, I think the last several decades of his life, he was sort of obsessed with that question because he felt it was really important that we all live in one shared reality.
3: Yeah. And and I think there is I mean, it's hard to separate physics from the human appetite for connection, although ultimately we kind of have to do that. Or as you're suggesting, you know, maybe not entirely. But, um, you know, and I do think the relationship between offspring and parent, I mean, if time travel didn't exist, we would have to invent it because you're just constantly think. I think about my father all the time, and I think about going back to the past and influencing him in different ways. And I'm going to talk to Emma very specifically about things you can (laughs) and can't influence. But but we can't forget that we're human beings, right? We want to be able to move around in time. Maybe it's not so surprising that both in fiction and in physics, there's so much work done on this.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, as humans, it's like we're very we're creatures of evolution we're creatures of the past and our ancestry and and there's something sort of weird about like taking all of that past that's already in you and then trying to like move it back into the past you know um but yeah we carry our histories with us and they make us who who we are and and all of that comes into play i think
3: Alright, so we've been talking to, to Amanda Gefter. We love her work. And yes, now you can go pick up Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. Uh, and But now we're starting to think about what would happen if you traveled back into the past and changed a couple of things and then traveled back into what you had previously thought of as your present. What would that feel like? We are back. I should say, we kind of did some time travel uh, just working on this show because, in fact, Sarah Bernstein was recorded, I don't know, like a long time ago. I'm live on the air on November 16th, I think is what today is. 17th, maybe? maybe It's the 17th. Lily says, okay, it's the 17th. So I don't know. I don't even know who the technical producer was when we recorded Sarah Bernstein, but whoever that was, Cat, Pastor, Katie Tularsky, somebody, uh, we thank that person. Dylan Rays is the technical producer as we're doing this show here on uh, November 17th. The uh, producer of this episode... Uh, in the past and the present, uh, and always into the future, will be uh, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, that's Lily Tyson. We also want to thank our interns, Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. Uh, and uh, we're, you're about to hear why. Uh, we're going to start talking to Emma Straub in just a second, a novelist and bookstore owner. Her newest book is This Time Tomorrow. But we did send the aforementioned, aforementioned Jacob and Taylor out into the mean streets, the mean streets of Connecticut, uh, to find out what people thought about time travel. Dylan, c one. If you had a time machine,
2: what would you do with it? Oh, my goodness. I'd go be, uh, I'd be 25 again. It was a good mix between being independent, but still young and and, uh, curious. That was really neat time.
1: I would go forward. Forward? Yeah. Why is that? I don't know what's there. I am a lawyer currently. And while I do love my job, um, my passion really is animals. And I might have figured that out a little sooner and maybe gone the vet route
3: head back in time and fix all my mistakes I've made in life and redo them and do better things, you know? I would go back to the 90s and invest in the stock market and make a lot of money. (laughs) Because I'm boring.
0: I would probably go back in time to like history. Any main history event that's happened, I'd like to witness. Probably electricity. I'd want to see that happen and see all of that nonsense.
3: (laughs) What would I do if I got a time machine? Absolutely nothing. Really? Why not? I don't want to go back in time. Not forward? No. All right. So, Emma Straub, uh, first of all, welcome, welcome to our conversation.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me.
3: So in your book, Alice, your protagonist, uh, who seems to bear certain resemblances to you, um, (laughs) uh, is located in two different spaces, uh, her 40th birthday and her 16th birthday. uh, And she does, in fact, uh, leave her 40th birthday and kind of wake up on her 16th birthday. But, you know, in many respects even though her father in this novel is a guy who wrote a really famous time travel book that has been popularized and turned into a TV series. I mean, for, for a lot of this book, it feels just a lot more about a father-daughter relationship than some kind of sci-fi time travel book. Maybe just talk about why you picked time travel because you're not really attacking it the way a sci-fi writer would.
0: Yes, no, that is that is very true. And it is it's something that like always makes me feel a little bit afraid when i get put on or when when this time tomorrow gets put on lists for like science fiction readers (laughs) (laughs) because i just want to say like if you're the kind of person who really like who loves like hardcore science fiction um and that's the place from which you come to time travel you would be sorely disappointed by my book <laughs> Although, <laughs> which is yeah. mostly people like sitting around eating hot dogs oh. like in 1996 <laughs> like it, it doesn't the time travel is very much not the point like I, the point is um you know I mean just just you know I, I've been listening and I think that you know like my my time travel is more like has more in common with you not knowing if today's the 16th or the 17th, like that kind <laughs> of time travel. <laughs> Well, um,
3: that's actually called disorientation, but that's fine. <laughs> Call it time travel if you want. Well, you know, on the other hand, and I'm being very, very careful not to spoil things because there are some yeah. pretty fabulous turns in this book, you know, or, or reveals or whatever. Um, but there's sort of one moment pretty well into the book where Alice does happen to be at this sort of Comic-Con type fantasy mm-hmm. writers convention mm-hmm. that her father mm-hmm. speaks at. and And she's in a little kind of private party and she brings up time travel. And basically the guests at the party who are all like sci-fi writers and stuff, they do basically the show that we've done so far, right? Yes, they go through yes. us, They give you about th- <laughs> thirty eight minutes of all the ways this could work or not work and stuff like that. yeah, and and at that point, it becomes clear to me that, yeah, you did spend some time, you know, with some of the questions that have been brought. sure.
0: yeah, sure. I yes, I absolutely did. I think mostly because, you know, i I mean, I'm a literary fiction writer. um but my father was a genre writer. he what he was not a science fiction writer. He wrote horror novels. But, you know, I I grew up around science fiction writers and fantasy writers and horror writers and thriller writers and all of these writers who had been like, you know, corralled into this uh, little, little area that was, you know, adjacent to like real books, but, but, you know, not quite as well lit or something. And the furniture was a little bit less comfortable, you know, just like where they weren't treated um, as well as they, as they should have been in my opinion. Um, And what I wanted to make sure that I was doing was, Like just giving them as much as much uh, sunshine as possible and just and taking it seriously, like taking it seriously within my book, which is, you know, both serious and funny and and again, not not a science fiction book. Um, But yeah, you know, I. I thought, okay, how can I how can I do this? How can I explain <laughs> all the various theories of time travel um, in a way that feels entertaining, accessible, um, and and also like feels true to to the kind of conversations that that I had heard a thousand times, and <laughs> that that was my that that that's what came out.
3: Well, one of the things that um, does come out of all this and does sort of come up in the book, and I'm being careful again here, but um, Mm -hmm. is the idea of stickiness, which I I really liked a lot, the idea that reality, time, space, life, reality, has a kind of inertial quality, that given a choice, it would rather not change. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, maybe you can do some stuff that will create these kind of butterfly uh, effect um, uh, developments uh, similar to what Sarah was talking about talking about at the beginning of the show, but, but say a little bit more about it, because I, I really love it. The time doesn't really want to jump the track <laughs> of, yeah. of what it's doing.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I think that it's true. I think that it's true. I think that, you know, all of us only make so many enormous choices in our lives. Mostly we, we make small ones. And so, you know, if you major in English or you major in art history, is that gonna fully change who you are? I don't. I don't know. Like if you if you say if you go on a date with someone and or I don't even if you marry one person, I just I really do feel like most decisions are not um, cate- cate- you know, like they don't categorically change um, your entire life. I feel like your earlier guests might disagree with that. <laughs> well,
3: well, I mean, you know, we, we actually I... there is a terrific science fiction story by a very overlooked writer named R. A. Lafferty. It's called Thus We, Thus We Frustrate Charlemagne, and it's about this group mm-hmm. of scientists and a machine, and they keep talking about how they're going to change something in the past, and they'll like send a dart back in the in the past and kill William of Occam, so there's no Occam's mm-hmm. Razor, and then they go, well. It's a failure. Nothing changed. Whereas, whereas mm-hmm. in fact, everything has changed. They're just mm-hmm. not aware mm-hmm. of it, you know. And, right, right. And, and so one of the other things that kind of happens in your book is one of the characters waking up with this kind of brain fog. Right. Which is another thing that we don't really talk about that much. But let's say that you time traveled into the past and then you time traveled into a changed future. Um, you might it, might it might be really hard to kind of wrap your mind around what's happening. And I think you sketch that out really well, too.
0: Thanks. Thanks. You know, it it was, it was such terrific fun for me writing this book um, because I think, you know, it's so human. I think that the reason that, you know, most people like who you interviewed on the street had an answer one way or the other um, is because it, I think it's a very human desire to want to, to especially go back into the past, you know, to re-experience something, whether it's, you know, to have more time with a loved one or just more time, you know, as yourself in a previous incarnation. Um, you know, it, it's, I think it's irres- it's irresistible. Um, and I, and I was interested in, in sort of, in Leaning into that and then playing with that, but then also, like, yeah, would, wouldn't you kind of wake up with a hangover? <laughs> like, if you went into your 16 year old body and then came back into your 40 year old body, wouldn't that feel pretty bad?
3: Yeah, no, um, there is. I mean, I we played that David Byrne song for a reason. First of all, it's, yeah, mentioned, mentioned, no, it's it, mentioned in the book, but also, yeah, it's like excellent,
0: you know, excellent music cues. Yeah. I have to say, <laughs> what throughout. is this place? Well done, where
3: am I? And, yeah, and, um, you know. You said sitting around eating hot dogs. Really, what people are doing uh, when the character is sixteen? They're sitting around eating hot dogs and they're smoking, and I think mm-hmm. smoking becomes kind of an interesting, I don't know, metaphor or trope in the book because it's a really good one here because, you know, it's the kind of. Thing that isn't necessarily amenable to new information. Most people who were smoking in the 1990s knew smoking was dangerous. Telling them it would be dangerous to them, you know, wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I think about going into the past and doing stuff with my father um, and, mm-hmm. and talking to him about things. He was a playwright whose whose playwriting kind of foundered at a certain point, and I think I understand now why. I don't plan on talking to my father about his drinking because I just he already knew <laughs> drinking was dangerous. <laughs> it was a problem. It was like you know, and I mean, the notion that we can change anything is in. Insane. I mean, you can't necessarily yeah. get people to do stuff just to not do things just because they're bad for them.
0: Right. Right. Yes. No, I mean, if anything, I think if I went back, I would enjoy all the smoking. And I think, <laughs> oh, this is terrific. I'm so glad I don't do it now, but I sure enjoyed doing it then.
3: So this, you know, yeah, your father Peter Scrub, um, you know, this is clearly based somewhat anyway on your very very close relationship with him, uh, and and it was really kind of interesting to think about that and Amanda's relationship with her father, but this obviously was very difficult too because your father since then ha- ha- has died, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I mean, I don't even know what question I'm asking you. I guess we're almost out of time, but I want you to have a <laughs> chance to maybe say a little something about you know, kind of where that is in the fiction and where it is for you as a writer.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I I'm so glad that I wrote this book when I did, which is after my father had been or when my father was very, very, very sick. Um, But but he lived, he lived like he he got out of the hospital. He had this enormous heart surgery Um, and but I wrote about, you know, his death was so close and I saw it so clearly that I wrote this book all about how much I loved him and, and our relationship and, you know, just thinking about his death and thinking about art and fiction and what these things do for all of us and for my father and for me. Um, and, and the, the best part is that i was able to share it with him and he read it so many times (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and this book really helped me helped both of us i think prepare um for his death and and so you know when it came i like i think i was as ready as a person could possibly be um yeah, and it's, I mean, it is the joy of my life that I was able to share it with him.
3: Well, it's a terrific book, uh, Emma Straub, and it's called This Time Tomorrow. Uh, you were uh, lovely to visit us and talk to us uh, about time travel, uh, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, mean, I wish we had another half hour, because <laughs> because memory is time travel, you know, time travel, yeah. and that's that's how we travel through time we remember, and, and as a fiction writer, you can even change stuff, uh, yeah. but uh, anyway, thanks so much for talking to us, and thanks. Thanks to the rest Thank of you, you for listening, and Mr. Rays, you may play us out.